Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Julia Stettel, your host, and today we'll be talking to Andreas Gerlach about his new book, Dieber, or in English, Thieves, Stealing in Literature, Philosophy and Myth. Mr. Gerlach currently holds a postdoc position at the famous Humboldt University in Berlin. Mr. Gerlach, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, um, to start with, what is always interesting about an author, I think, is how he got the idea of writing his book, right? So um, I wonder whether you can just uh, recall any key moment when you have started being interested in thieves, or can you just name some persons that have inspired you? Well, I can actually, but it's always, I think for, if an author is honest, it's not just one moment that inspires a book, but it's more of a coming together of several influences and all that. So I could name, um, several authors, of course, which would be Marcel Moos in his work on the gift or Hans Blumenberg with his study of mythology that really did influence me. But I also have to name, um, autobiographical moments um, that I think they were important um, studying the autobiographies in my book um, on on stealing and theft. But, you know, I, I myself stole a Snickers once when I was a child and that um, really stuck to my mind. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't like it that much. Then it was just some candy bar, but it kind of stuck what, what happened to me there. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> um. Uh, so uh, to go on simple, I think um, everybody has got an explanation in mind what theft means and even children, as you just mentioned. Um, but nonetheless, could you just give us the most important characteristics of theft? Yes, I can. It's actually not that difficult because that initial notion of what theft is, is pretty clear already and most people got the right definition in mind but um, to define it more or less judicially it's 
A theft is taking something without permission from the owner. And um, to make a, for me, vastly important um, um, uh, differentiation, um, it is taking this thing without violence. And it would be robbery, taking it with violence or with, um, with a threat of violence. And theft is always um, pretty silent, pretty cunning, pretty, um, pretty has to, has to have, happen secretly and un, unseen in a way. Um, and that is pretty much it. That's it, taking something secretly or at least um, without, without threat to the owner. Mm -hmm. So, just important to keep in mind that theft and robbery isn't the same, right? Absolutely, absolutely. That is something of um, of pretty much importance, and I tend to get asked about people like Robin Hood or or other famous robber barons or or, or thieves of uh, chiefs of robber robber um, um, bands, but that's not theft as such. That's pretty much stealing. With a tendency to be to be even more like a, a, a almost para society in the woods in the case of Robin Hood, that is something else. I'm I'm interested in those tiny little actions of just taking something. Oh, I see. Um, now your books look your book looks at theft in a cross cultural approach, yeah. so that it takes languages from different backgrounds into account. However, as we are here looking at your book from the perspective of German studies, we will mostly talk about the prominent German philosophers you include in your study. So, um, well, for example, in your first chapter, you mention Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Yeah. And um, as the reader gets to know for Hegel's theory, uh, property is quite important because uh, Hegel does not define the individual by being, but rather by having. So this is a difference between being and having. And it, it sounds uh, somehow a bit complicated. And so could you just explain what this means? And could you then clarify why Hegel's philosophy is crucial for your analysis of self? I can, or at least I can try it for. Um, this is a part of my book that really strict philosophers and Hegelians tend to not like all too much because they, um, I went at it from a perspective of, of literary and cultural studies and it's not as strict in terms as people would like to, to have it sometimes, but still. Um, I do think that somewhere in the development of our culture, we move from a conception of the human being as being and being a body, being a soul, being a subject to a ruler, being a peasant or lord um, to a different approach. And Hegel is, is just pivotal to that, to that change, I think. And we changed our conception of the human being from being to having, having a body, having a soul, having rights and having a job and having a vocation or something. And that switch from being to have, having happening sometime in, I don't know, after Renaissance or something. And um, that is important in so far as when we define ourselves as having we do have things as well. And those things um, um, belong to ourselves as, as, an, 
as an entity existing in this world. So when something is being taken from us, something is stolen from us that directly affects us as human beings and that directly um, reaches into the core of our existence. And um, as Hegel was very strong on defining um, the human being as through an act of appropriation and through um, um, having something, most of it ourselves, um, stealing becomes an act that tends to slip directly into robbery because, for Hegel because that act and directly reaches out to our core as such. We can't just be taking away something accidental. It always goes directly to a substance. So I think Hegel has very much understood that property is the utmost, uh, the thing of the utmost importance for us in modern or uh, modern times. But still, he's very strict on, on theft and wants it to be punished pretty harshly, actually. He once says that for stealing a, uh, a carrot, more or less, then the, the, the death penalty is pretty much okay. So he got that notion that having is important, but um, and thus developed a very distinct feeling for when it's when it's wrongly affected what one somebody owns and somebody else takes. But he's going strict on that, and that interested me a lot. Then that theft there is is a crime of such importance although he hardly ever talks about it. Yeah, it's so interesting. And um, as is well known, um, Hegel's philosophy had also a deciding influence upon Karl Marx. Yeah. And therefore, it is probably not so surprising that you do in fact mention Karl Marx later on in your book. And maybe you could just tell us what Marx says about the stealing of wood. Yeah, that is a... Karl Marx has written a lot, and that's for sure. But he started his writing uh, as a pretty young person at the age of, I don't know, 21 or something, um, and doing journalistic work. And there he was sent to uh, write for a newspaper. He was sent writing for a newspaper. He was sent to a pretty small and um, boring German regional parliament where a new law concerning the collecting of wood in the forests was discussed. And that just first sounds very, very boring, as um, it maybe even was, but that completely enraged the young Karl Marx, because something um, of extreme importance, and a, one could say a cultural shift was happening there, or was uh, could, be, could be watched happening there, and that was... Um, the following. People in, in the German countryside were usually allowed to collect their, their firewood in the forests. And they needed that firewood for heating in winter and for baking their bread. That was a very, very important resource for people. They needed to, to be allowed to collect that wood. And that was okay. That was okay for generations and for people to go into the woods and just collect mostly mostly debris and dead wood, what was lying around there. And because those forests were the property of feudal lords, and there was that agreement in between um, those lords and the people living in the villages that it was okay to collect the wood. And then suddenly something weird happened, and those forests were 
changed by rather than calling them feudal property or under the dominance of a lord, they were turned into private property. And that switch, which is something merely on the symbolic level, was discussed there in that regional parliament with Karl Marx sitting in the back benches. Um, and what happened there was, and that enraged him really, he was a person that could get angry pretty, pretty easily and pretty extremely so. Um, those people collecting their woods were changed from, from mere wood collectors to thieves. And that was wrong in his eyes. And that was the first point where Karl Marx was affected with the, with the intricacies of economy and the, this, and the, the appropriation, the wrongful appropriation of resources by people that were just allowed to do so because some parliament told them it was okay. That was the, in my eyes, that moment um, watching theft and watching people being turned into thieves that started Karl Marx's interest in economy. Well, it seems to be a quite emotional moment after all. I'd say so, um, yes. I'd say so. That was emotional for him. And, um, and this uh, whole context of Marx, uh, you also mentioned Hannah Arendt. Yes. And um, yeah, that she that she has criticized uh, Marx. Um, why is that so? Well, she, she she Hannah Arendt criticized Karl Marx in quite some parts, and um, she had a certain dislike for one trait of his thought that um, is evident in that part uh, already. She once said, I think that was in a different context, that she and call Karl Marx a revolutionary, but not a philosopher, which is not the worst thing, I'd say. But still, that says something about her relationship to Karl Marx's philosophy. Um, and she criticized in a letter to Karl Jaspers and in her, in her thought diary, she criticized those articles on the theft of wood that Marx wrote um, as not taking into account the individuality of the need of those people that collected the wood or that wanted to own the forest and the resource as such. And that sounds a little abstract, but still there's that point that uh, Hannah Arendt is right. Marx wasn't interested in that particular single individual human being. He was interested in uh, the proletariat or mankind as such. And he wasn't interested in um, that wood or what wood that was. And uh, Hannah Arendt says that might have been plastic as well. And he, she's right about that. Marx wasn't interested in the, in the individual things, but more in the abstract and historical differences as with that changing of the forests from um, one symbolic state to the other, from feudal property to private property. And that, you know, um, made her say that Karl Marx is not a philosopher, but more a revolutionary. Those texts, just by the way, they weren't philosophical. They were merely journalistic. Um, but still, she's right about that. Marx didn't, wasn't interested in that one, I don't know, mother of four children needing to collect the wood to, to, to make 
to make bread for, for her kids. That wasn't that didn't interest her uh, interest uh, Karl Marx. But Hannah Arendt had a pretty fine feeling for people um, giving up the individuals for the greater good, which was always abstract and in her eyes with a tendency to be totalitarian. So they just had a different concept of human beings and individuality? Well, I'd say so. Um, Hannah Arendt was always interested in the individual, in that, that individual person, whereas Marx was interested in mankind. And Arendt once said that giving up thinking or, or caring for, for the singular person um, and, and turning towards working for the greater good of mankind is always something uh, or might even be something um, like human sacrifice, she said. Giving up the needs of, of a singular individual person um, is something like sacrificing it to the greater good of the betterment of mankind and that with that pathos actually as well um, and i think she's right about that and i like that thinking because it's about the one and single person that i look towards in my study of theft as well because theft and stealing is always following your own particular and oftentimes peculiar desire and your wanting that one um thing you want and thieves aren't interested in mankind as such they just follow their longings and if they want that candy bar or that apple or that pear and whatever has been stolen so often and um, in literature that's what they want and they don't care about mankind yeah um very good um now uh, let's switch to another topic mm -hmm. um heliocentrism Yeah. Um, that is to say, the model that the Earth turns around the sun instead of the other way around. Yeah. Um, and in this context, uh, Hans Blumenberg uh, claims Copernicus to be a thief because yeah. of his new theory. Um, but what exactly does Copernicus, according to Blumenberg, steal with it and from whom? Yeah, well, that is a pretty complicated question because the Copernican revolution um, is a is a topic I think not even yet properly understood what happened there. Because just saying, you know, from Copernicus on, um, the earth revolves around the sun and not the sun around the earth, that just doesn't explain what happened there. And one has to go back um, one step to see what the cosmology um, of, of Ptolemaic times looked like and that was and um, the earth in the center as the most material even the lowest planet but encased in those crystalline spheres with the moon and the planets and the stars and the angels and those spheres one has to understand them really as as um, spheres of crystal revolving around the earth in an intricate and and spiritual dance encasing it and, and caring for it and sheltering it as well. And that was the, the notion before Copernicus. And he said, you know, that's just not right. It's, it can't happen like this. It can't be because calculating 
how the sphere with uh, Uranus or with Neptune revolves is such a different, difficult mathematical um, formula that we just can't uphold this. And he said, let's change it. If we change, if we change what revolves around what, um, we get very, very much easier formula to calculate that. And he says, well, then, if you say the Earth revolves around the Sun, and that just makes things easier. And in all this, something happened. Because for um, the Earth revolving around the Sun, one has to do away with the, that thought of the spheres, with those crystalline spheres. They have to be shattered and, and taken out. And then what happens is that space becomes indefinite and eternal. Because not having those spheres that are always measurable, and we have indefinite and infinite space and that taking into account infinity in physical matters is something like a um, property that once was only God's. Only God was infinite and eternal before that and now suddenly physical space is and Hans Blumenberg notes that in his uh, marvelous and very thick book and the Legitimität der Neuzeit, the legitimacy of, I don't know, modern age. I don't even know if it's translated into English yet. Um, he says that that thing, that, that stealing from God, the notion of infinity or eternity, was what kick-started um, secularism, or the, 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 the modern conception of enlightenment as well. And maybe it wasn't Copernicus, he himself was actually pretty conservative, but and uh, Nicolaus Cusanus later on popularizing and radicalizing Copernicus ideas, he did that. He said, now we are the ones being able to think infinity in physical terms. And that took something very important away from God, just like Copernicus stole the fire from, from the God of the sun. That was a, Blumenberg makes that a parallel notion, something almost the same, um, the modern age and the Enlightenment starting with a, with a little theft of something symbolic, but of the utmost importance, which was infinity. I see. Um, amazing. Uh, now, Mr. Geller, we've already uh, taken a lot of your time, um, but maybe one last question. Of course. Um, so, um, in his book, Moses and Monotheism, yeah. Sigmund Freud argues that the biblical Moses was murdered um, however, you claim that this is false and that instead the whole story is all about theft. Yeah. Um, could you shortly present Freud's argument and then explain your alternative explanation and how it differs from Freud? Yeah, um, that is also a large question pertaining pretty much one of the, one of the largest uh, chapters and the most difficult chapters of my book. And the thing is, Freud claims that Moses was murdered by the Hebrews um, and, and thus there was a, a, a patricide fitting into his theory of, of the Oedipal killing of the father. Um, but the thing is, nowhere in the Jewish Bible is it even implied that Moses was killed by the Hebrews. It just, there is no trace of that, which doesn't bother Freud. He had that hermeneutics of looking into the depths of texts, deeply below the surface structure of texts and found 
uh, things there that even if they are not um, true as such, make a lot of sense as his argument. Now, I don't say, you know, I don't know whether Moses was killed or died of old age or something. But the thing is, on the surface of the text of the, um, of the, of the books of Moses, um, there are traces to be found what happened there. And there is even an explanation why Moses had to die at that point. And that um, is in the context of um, him taking away something from God and being punished for that. There was that one moment when the Hebrews were walking through the desert and they were all very, very thirsty and almost dying from thirst. And Moses got a tip from God and that if he hit his staff upon a certain rock, there would be water flowing out of that rock. Moses did that and um, a well sprung and the, the Hebrews had to drink again. And God saved his people at that moment as he did very, very often. Now, um, it is said in, in the fifth book of Moses that Moses had to die because he didn't give God the honor for that. He took away um, God's, God's honor in that gift. And that is a very important context for my whole work that always works, uh, that, that is always written on the background of Marcel Mus and his wonderful essay on the gift. And because the one giving a gift is always in a more powerful position than the one receiving a gift. Gifts give you power. And even God has to be careful whether um, he's being given the honor and thus the authority of gift giving. So Moses died because he took away something from God or didn't, you know, really reciprocate him on that gift. But um, the interesting thing is there's a lot of more real stealing in the Jewish Bible. For example, Rachel is stealing um, the household gods of her father. She's just taking that away, not killing her father, but stealing from him. That is something pretty different from Sigmund Freud. It's also a crime of foundation, as I say, because Rachel is founding her own family by that theft, making a difference in between her father and herself, but still sticking to, to the tradition of her father in stealing his household gods. And there's a lot of more thefts going on in um, the, the older books of the Bible. Even Eve taking that apple in paradise in God's garden is more or less stealing from history. And there's way more. The Hebrews, when they had their exodus leaving Egypt, they took the gold of the Egyptians and Joseph had that theft of the silver cup very, very intricately organized. Even there's a lot of stealing in the Bible, and very little killing of the father. And that happens on the surface of the text, which Sigmund Freud wasn't that much interested in because he had that archaeological view into the depths of, of meaning and into the unconscious of texts and peoples. And I tried to read the surface and there's a lot of telling about stealing in the Bible, very little of killing the father. So I think um, giving that perspective to biblical texts of stealing and theft, that gives it a, um, you know, a, a different meaning 
same thing actually but with less violence less killing or threatening your father less bloodshed and more cunning thievery and intelligent appropriation of what one desires okay um mr gerlach uh, that sounds like a great book of yours uh, i want to thank you for being on the show today thank you and i really enjoyed it so take care thank you you too bye bye